everyone and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. This week on Full Circle, we will be diving back into the lynching case of Timothy Charles Lee who was lynched at the Concord BART station in 1985. On tonight's show, we'll hear voices of the community that gathered in Concord for the first annual Memorial Walk for Timothy Charles Lee, including testimony from Kiku Johnson, the now former executive director of the Rainbow Community Center in Concord. We'll also hear a brief history of lynching in the United States by First Voice graduate Rada Keel and L.A.-based artist Ken Gonzalez Day and his history of lynching in California by Shiloh B. We'll also meet a San Francisco-based visual artist, Maria Judice, and learn how Timmy's story has influenced her life and her work. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host tonight, Freewill and Franklin, coming to you from right here in downtown Antioch. This is Bay Miwok Territory. Tonight's show is dedicated to the life of my cousin, Timothy Charles Lee, and the renewed fight for justice for Timmy. Head over to Facebook right now and like our new page, Reopen the Case of Timothy Charles Lee. And keep it locked right here to KPFA. And now one 
Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I am your host tonight, Freewell and Franklin. That song you just heard was A Good Man Is Gone by Barbara Mason. And again, that is a shout out and a dedication to my cousin, Timothy Charles Lee. And this entire show is dedicated to him tonight. For those of you that have been following Full Circle and learning about the case of Timothy Charles Lee, or if you missed it, he was lynched at the Concord BART station in 1985. Then following a police cover-up, his murder was ruled a suicide. At that time, the NAACP and the ACLU, along with community members, formed an organization called CARSAGA, the Coalition Against Racist, Sexist, and Anti-Gay Attacks. They held protests and fought for justice for Timmy, but were denied. Well, to lift up and elevate the name of my cousin Timothy Charles Lee and to bring his story back into the public consciousness, we held the first annual memorial walk for Timothy Charles Lee this past November 2nd on the Day of the Dead. It was the 37th anniversary of Timothy's murder. About 30 participants gathered at the new home of the Rainbow Community Center in Concord, and before the walk, they paused for introductions and reflections on why they were here. I'll be playing these clips throughout the show tonight, and the music used in these clips is from Lo-Fi Beats to Study By on YouTube. Uh, my name's Nicole. I use she, her pronouns. I remember hearing this from my social justice club, and just from the get-go, it made me feel sick. And being here, I'm not only here to seek justice, but also to keep his name alive. So I'm hoping we can do that today. I'm uh, Judy Herman, and I use she, her. I'm here because I'm 66 years old. I remember as a child, people in my neighborhood carrying signs, protesting people of color moving into the neighborhood. I don't understand why we're still having this fight. I don't understand why as late as 1988, this still happened. I don't understand. And as long as we need to keep having this fight, we need to keep having it. I just don't understand why we need to keep having it. I'm Jack Walton. I'm here because I don't believe Timothy Lee got justice. And I believe that we should keep his name alive. I'm Jay. I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. And I'm just here because I believe justice should be served. Hello, my name is Yvette Maruri. I'm I go by she, her pronouns. I'm a resident of Concord. I moved here in the 1990s, and I remember hearing about this in high school that this had happened, and I found I couldn't believe that this could happen during my time. And um, I'm really happy to be here to try to find out the truth and to uncover what really happened. So I think this is really important work that we're doing right now. Thank you. Um, my name is Mari. I use she, her, they, them pronouns, and I'm just here because it, it's absolutely wrong what they did, and we need justice. Hi, I'm Laura Nakamura. I use she, her, they, them pronouns. I'm a candidate for Concord City Council, and I am here because I learned of Timothy Charles Lee's story 
And the tragedy that I know in my heart that was not a suicide, I know that something happened back then. I lived here. I have lived in Concord for over 30 years, and I know that our history has been very dark and full of hate at times. And sometimes even our leadership in our city has, has led that and has been responsible for that hate being fostered. We need to stop the tolerance of hate, and we need to remember those whose lives were taken because of hate, of who they, what they looked like and what they might have represented. Um, and I'm here to honor Timothy Charles Lee. Welcome back. You're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network. I am your host tonight, Free Will and Franklin, and you just heard voices of some of the folks that gathered for the first annual memorial walk for Timothy Charles Lee, who was lynched at the Concord BART station in 1985. Unfortunately, at that time, the killing was ruled a suicide, and no one was ever held accountable. That last voice you just heard was newly elected city councilwoman, Laura Nakamura. And if you're out there, Laura, we heard what you said about Timmy, and we are hoping you will be a champion on the city council for Timmy. Prior to the memorial walk, I invited the entire city council and the mayor to come out, and not one of them showed up, except for, at that time, candidate Laura Nakamura. So congratulations, Laura, and I look forward to working with you. And by bringing back the story of Timmy's case, we're hoping to find justice. Moving on right now, how did we get here today where my cousin Timmy could be killed in this way right here in the Bay Area in 1985? Before we hear more sounds from the Memorial Walk for Timothy, here is First Voice graduate apprentice Roddick Hill with a history of lynching in the United States. And I want to give you all a warning. This story does contain graphic descriptions of lynching and may be triggering to some. After the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which made African-American citizens of the United States, riots broke out in many of the southern states. As a result, the Ku Klux Klan was established in 1867, and the number of African-American lynchings increased dramatically. In the years between 1882 and 1930, in the 10 southern states, there were 2,805 documented victims of lynchings. The vast majority of these lynchings, 2,500, were African-American. Of these black victims, 94% died in the hands of white lynch mobs. The scale of this carnage means that, on the average, a black man, woman, or child was murdered nearly once a week, every week, by a hate-driven white mob. During these ritual racist killings, crowds would gather as if they were going to a town festival. Parents would bring their children to watch a human being tortured, burned, and lynched. Dr. Joy Leary, the author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, in one of her lectures reads a newspaper article that describes in great detail one of these lynchings. 
Before the torch was applied, the Negro was deprived of his ears, fingers, and genital parts of his body. He pleaded pitifully for his life while the mutilization was going on, but stood the ordeal of fire with surprising fortitude. Before the body was cool, it was cut to pieces, the bones were crushed into small bits, and even the tree upon which the wretch met his fate was torn up and disposed of as souvenirs. The Negro's heart was cut into several pieces, as was also his liver. Those unable to obtain the ghastly relics direct paid their more fortunate possessors extravagant sums for them. Small pieces of bones went for 25 cents, and a bit of the liver crisply cooked sold for 10 cents. As soon as the Negro was seen to be dead, there was a tremendous struggle among the crowd to secure the souvenirs. Knives were quickly produced, and soon the body was dismembered. Plain old common folk did this. In the documentary, American Lynching, James Cameron remembers being almost lynched. I was 16 years old. Thomas Shipp was 18 and Abram Smith was 19. The mob came into the jail and they got Tommy out first. He was right below me on the first floor. They took him around from this side of the jail to the other side and hung him on the jail windows where Abe was incarcerated. And no doubt Abe was looking at him as they hung him from the windows on the outside of his cell block. Then 15 or 20 minutes later, after celebrating that kill, they came back in, they got Abe out, they beat him to death, drug him past the alley here, and I couldn't see anymore, and then a half a block away, they hung him on the tree. Finally, this guy said, take them all out and lynch him, and when he said that, this 16-year-old boy, Charles Haynes, he raised his hand and said, it wasn't none of us, but that's him right there, and he pointed his finger at me like that. And when he did that, the mob closed in on me, and when... They got out into the street, the mob hollered, we got him, we got him, we got him. And the police was helping the mob so they could get me up to the tree where Tom and Abe was hanging with a rope around their neck. And they got me up to the tree, they put the rope around my neck, and they threw the end of the rope over the limb of the tree. I kept looking to the right and to the left and begging for help and telling the people to help me that I hadn't done anything to deserve this. And they were getting ready to pull me up when I prayed to God. I said, Lord, have mercy, forgive me my sins. As soon as I prayed, a voice came out. I said, take this boy back. He had nothing to do with any killing or raping. And that voice came from far away, drifting down. And uh, that mob that had already killed two human beings and they took that rope off my neck and they allowed me to stumble and stagger back to the jail, which was just a half a block away. People from the lynch mob would take photographs of the dead victims and make postcards and mail them to their friends and relatives throughout the country. They would also take these photos, frame them, and hang them on their living room walls as if they were family portraits. For the past 25 years, James Allen has collected over 100 photographs and postcards of lynchings throughout the United States. These photos have been published as a book called Without Sanctuary. Mr. Allen comments on his findings. In America, everything is for sale, even a national shame. Studying these photographs has engendered in me a caution of whites, of the majority, of the young, of religion, of the accepted. Perhaps a certain circumspection concerning these things was already in me, but surely not as actively as after the first sight of a brittle postcard of Leo Frank, dead in an oak tree. 
It wasn't the corpse that bewildered me, as much as the canine thin faces of the pack lingering in the woods, circling after the kill. Hundreds of flea markets later, a trader pulled me aside and in conspiratorial tones offered to sell me a real photo postcard. It was Lord Nelson, hanging from a bridge, caught so pitiful and tattered and beyond retrieving, like a paper kite snagged on a utility wire. That image of Laura layered a pall of grief over all my fears. I believe the photographer was more than a perceptive spectator at lynchings, positioning and lighting corpses as if they were game birds shot on the wing. Indeed, the photographic art played as significant a role in the ritual as torture or souvenir grabbing. Lust propelled the commercial reproduction and distribution of the images. Even dead, the victims were without sanctuary. With each encounter, I can't help thinking of these photos and the march of time and of the cold steel trigger in the human heart. There were a number of African-American journalists. One such heroic journalist was Ida B. Wells. Ms. Wells constantly wrote about the discrimination and inequality that African-Americans endured in the United States. When three close male friends were lynched for opening up a grocery store directly across the street from a white-owned grocery store, outraged by the murder of her friends, Ms. Wells began an anti-lynching campaign. She wrote scathing editorials against lynching, and she spoke publicly throughout the country on the subject, and began to organize and mobilize African Americans in an effort to abolish this vicious practice. As a result, a mob destroyed the office of her newspaper, and she lived under constant death threats. During this horrific time, black congressmen tried to pass an anti-lynching bill. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a measure three times to make lynching a federal offense, but it was knocked down in the Senate. Powerful Southern senators used the filibuster to block votes. The Southern senators didn't want to offend their constituents with anti-lynching laws. Some of the arguments used on the Senate floor, quote, Whenever a Negro crosses this dead line between the white and the Negro race and lays his black hand on a white woman, he deserves to die." Unquote. That was said by Alabama Senator James Thomas Heflin in 1930. In a 1938 debate, Richard B. Russell, a senator from Georgia, constantly referred to lynching victims as niggers. On June 14, 2005, the U.S. Senate approved a resolution apologizing for its failure to pass federal anti-lynching laws. It's the first time the Senate has apologized for the nation's treatment of African Americans. Too little, too late. We still have African Americans terrorized by violence today. There was the highly publicized killing of James Byrd, who was dragged behind a truck and decapitated in Jasper, Texas. There was the well-dressed African American young man who was found hanging from a noose in Concord, California, that official claim was a suicide. And of course, there is the systematic genocide of young black men in urban communities today. So in another hundred years, will the government apologize again for the thousands of black lives lost and they still didn't do anything to stop it? For Full Circle, I'm Rod Akil. A quick update to this story. The U.S. finally passed 
anti-lynching laws in March of this year, 2022, when President Joe Biden signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act of 2022. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was a short history of lynching in the United States by First Voice graduate Rod Akeel. Thank you for that historic perspective, Rod. Let's bring it back to the present day and hear some more voices from the first annual Memorial Walk for Timothy Charles Lee, held November 2nd, this year in Concord, California, 2022. Hello, I'm Evelyn Suarez. I go by she, they, he, or any pronouns. And I'm here to honor Timothy's life and I'm also very sad that I've really heard about this recently. I hope that more people can find out about this. Hi, my name is Nico. I go by she, her, and it's an honor to be here um, and fight for justice. I'm Kent Green. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm here to support my community, friends, family, co-workers, and just people in general. Hi, my name's Sirena Saldivar. I go by she, her, and I'm here to support Timothy and his family. And I guess it's really shocking to hear that this occurred in like a town that I've been living in for my whole life. And to know that my family and friends that are part of the LGBTQ community and are either black or native, and to know that stuff like this could happen to them is like really disturbing and heartbreaking. So. Hopefully we can get justice. I'm Donna Walton and I've lived here since 1979 so I remember when this happened and at the time just really thought it was very, very suspicious. Didn't really get involved in it then I, and so, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to, to see if we can at least bring this back and, and really get you know, our community to look at the circumstances of what happened to him. I heard about this a few years ago, the incident, um, just in murmurs from the grassroots community. And uh, then I heard it from you directly recently. I recently became acquainted with you. I'm here in Act of Solidarity looking for justice. Oh, I'm Dave Hughes. I'm Laura Valdez and I use she, her pronouns. I'm here to just help bring Timothy's name to the light and to honor him. Um, it's never too late to get justice. Hi, my name is Kelly Ferguson. I'm the Director of Development with Rainbow Community Center. I'm here today to honor Timothy Lee and in solidarity for all the black and brown queer and trans individuals who get targeted. Hello, my name is Axel. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm here in solidarity to remember the life of Timothy Lee. All right, you are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA and kpfa.org. We just heard some more of the voices of the people that gathered for the first annual Memorial Walk for Timothy Charles Lee. And right now, I want to send a big shout out to everyone that showed up to honor Timmy. I was really impressed with the turnout of the high school students um, the young people came out for Timmy, and I appreciate it very much, and I thank you all. Well, after we walked through the streets of Concord to the spot where Timmy was killed, where local residents had set up an altar, we took time to hear some of the speakers. Here is Kiku Johnson. 
then the executive director of Rainbow Community Center, sharing his story. Hey, everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, I heard someone ask about stories, and I was really struck by when we had our opening of our center early in September for a group of folks. Um, Frank's dad was there, Frank Sr. And we talked to him about embracing who Timmy was. And Timmy was also a queer man, also a gay man. And Timmy expressed himself just like we all do in our ways and how we show up and what we look like, what we choose to do with our hair and our clothing and makeup, et cetera. And he was embraced by an elder in his family and that made all the difference around him being able to thrive and be his full self. But when I think about someone like Timmy, again, I was 12 years old when he was killed in 1985. I was also someone who was embracing art and expression in so many ways, and also a person of color, and also a queer person. So I'm an out transgender man, and I know how important it is to have representation and to show up and to be visible. I also know how much risk that is in different times, in different places. And to think about someone like Timmy who was here and the story of how he got to this space, not even his home space, that someone can take a look at you and take a look at the color of your skin and make other assumptions and be threatened and have fear around that in a way where you express harm and you kill somebody. And then you have systems that don't show up, that don't show up to be there for you. I'm struck by so many aspects around who Timmy was, wishing that I could have known who he was, knowing that he would be 60 in this year, knowing that it's 37 years ago, thinking about there was someone here with an Oscar Grant sign as well. I live in Oakland, about a couple miles from Fruitvale Bart. I think about all the things that happen in our public spaces. I'm also Chinese American. And I think about these last few years of being Asian in this pandemic and all of what can happen when you have certain people at the microphone who are given voice and the ways in which that can reach, how far that can go and how that can create a lot of feelings and ideas in ways in which that we are not valued as people. We are thought of as less than for a lot of different aspects. And it's not just one part of who Timmy is and who Timmy was. Being a black, gay, native man who was aspiring to do the work in the world that was going to bring him joy and love and to amplify who he is. And now we're here. We're here in the middle of this miniature forest next to a public transportation depot where he saw the end of his life and didn't have voice to be able to defend himself. We posted this on our social media, Rainbow Community Center, this event this evening. And we had a person comment that was Latina Latinx presenting and said they remembered that night and remembered at their door, KKK knocked. And they are here today to be able to acknowledge that. And to be able to have another voice chime in on that comment seemingly white presenting in their photo saying, I remember that also that night. So what that tells me is that people remember, people know, people knew this story, 
And we're in a different time now where we can access information, we can ask questions, we can show up and use our voices. And I think it's important and it should happen that it's reopened, that it's re-looked at. Again, if you haven't had a chance to read the information, this is a person who quote unquote left a suicide note and spelt their own name wrong and spelt their family members' names wrong and it was written under duress. I don't know how much more it takes to value lives that are not white. I don't know how much more it takes to value lives that are not heteronormative. Clearly it takes a lot. And so I'm just very proud to see so much of our community here from different places. I heard folks from Martinez, folks from Oakland. And I know just recently we had a group of activists and leaders of community organizations speaking in Martinez at the Board of Supervisors Chamber. They brought up phrases like looking at systems and ensuring that they're not based and informed by white supremacy and still having people who are politicians, who are in leadership roles that are given voices saying we are not comfortable with that phrase. I stand here and I say, I am not comfortable with someone being murdered. We need to look at language. We need to embrace what it means. We need to look at what really makes us upset and afraid. And I know we're not talking about the people that are standing here with lights in their hands. We're talking about the people in the buildings that run the services and the system and the folks who say, it's not my job to reopen a case. It's not my job to talk about this story or the statute of limitations of how many years lynchings can be acknowledged. We know that that's still happening. So I hope and I wanna encourage you all to continue to share this story, to ask for reactions, to ask what people think about things and what makes them feel. And if they know somebody in their world that is queer, that is black, that is native, that is aspiring again to have a life of joy, to be able to pursue creativity. This is not someone who had any issues happening where family members were concerned and that anybody was worried that this person was depressed, that was on the verge of taking their life. Again, a black presenting person lynching themselves in a public space. I don't know folks in my culture or in any black culture that would choose to do that. And if that's not questioned immediately, then there's definitely something wrong with the systems and who is choosing to say, it's my story to reopen. So please talk to folks, even if you're on the verge in the moment of like, yeah, I kind of know somebody that has power. I kind of know someone that has voice. It's about the conversation so people understand that we all have the ability to ask for what we need. I am grateful for the voices that are youth that are here this evening. I think it's a lot to learn about these things and to know that folks like us are still at risk. I can be out, I can be proud, and I can also always look over my shoulder every time I get out of a lift, every time I drive into the parking lot of my job. It matters to me know that you all know to keep each other safe 
and to speak up and to say something. Thank you so much. We honor Timothy. He knows that we are here. We see this beautiful ofrenda behind us. This is the second day of Dia de las Muertes, and this is the day when the veil is the most thin. And when we honor folks that have been with us on the planet, they know they can be here with us as well. We know Timothy is here right now. Timothy, who didn't have voice, is grateful that all 38 of us are here right now and that we will continue and walk back with our signs and our voices so that 38 other people can hear that on the street. So they can tell 38 other people. Thank you so much. Please support all of the organizations and the movements and the voices that stand up for the most marginalized people in our world, in our county, in our city. Support all those organizations because there are so many of them. And that includes our schools and our educators. It includes everybody who works with another human being. Let's send a lot of love through this light for Timothy Lee and all the peoples in our lives that have been treated with injustice or are not with us right now. Please remember them on this altar as well. All love for all of us. Thank you. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and worldwide all the time at kpfa.org part of the Pacifica Radio Network. You just heard the former executive director of the Rainbow Community Center of Concord, Kiku Johnson, speaking at the first annual Memorial Walk for Timothy Charles Lee. A big shout out to Kiku Johnson and the Rainbow Community Center for honoring my cousin Timmy with a dedication of one of their clinical rooms at the Rainbow Community Center's new location, 2380 Salvio Street in Concord. If you know anyone in the LGBTQIA community that needs any sort of support or services, please reach out to the Rainbow Community Center. You will find them online. And of course, we will post a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. Also, that was just 10 minutes of our 30-minute gathering. To hear and see the rest of the speakers, including folks from the Concord Community Alliance and more from the newly elected city councilwoman, Laura Nakamura, please go to the First Voice Media Facebook page. That's First Voice Media on Facebook. There you will find the entire video. And as always, we will post a link on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. Well, moving on right now, we're going to hear this interview I recorded yesterday with San Francisco-based visual artist Maria Judice. All right, this is Free Will and Franklin back here with you all on Full Circle. And on this quest to find out more about my cousin Timothy Charles Lee and to ultimately get some sort of justice or some sort of healing and closure... I've been meeting all kinds of people who have heard about my cousin and I hear the stories, how it affected people and their lives. And joining me now is one of those people who recently reached out to me after learning that we were again bringing Timmy's name uh, to the community. And her name is Maria Judice. And just pulling some off her bio, um, which you could find at MariaAJ.com. 
Um, Maria is a storyteller working as a, a visual storyteller, working as a writer, director, producer, and an industry equity and equality advocate and educator for 25 plus years. She was born in San Francisco and an everyday black experience is made visible in her work. And over the past five years, she has developed the California Black Aesthetic CBA is about preserving, highlighting and connecting and contextualizing all aspects of black life in the second largest state in the West, California, I'm supposing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome to Full Circle, Maria, and thanks for reaching out. Thank you. Thank you. It's really great to be here and great to connect around Timothy. And I woke up today and I was like, I can't believe I'm, I'm taking such a huge leap and and having an actual connection and conversation with someone about this person that I have been um, researching and learning more about over the past five years. Well, yeah. So let me just start off there. I guess I would ask you to first just tell us about how you heard about my cousin Timmy and you know the story behind that. Yeah, so I probably will start this story about maybe six years ago. My grandfather had recently died, and we were very close. He was probably my best friend. Uh, And there was a little note with a Polaroid attached to it, and the note said, don't forget to tell Baby Horse Around about this. And Baby Horse Around is me. We all get nicknames in my family. My family's from the South, so we love <laughs> nicknames. And my grandfather died right before he told me the story. His kind of thing of was like, Black history wasn't something you went to school to learn, which I did. <laughs> you can just sit and talk to me about it. So he always loved to like connect history for me, especially history around you know San Francisco and California since he moved here after World War II. And when I flipped the Polaroid over, it was a picture of a man hanging from a tree. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know that it was at the Concord Bart Station. But I eventually uh, figured that out. But on the back of it, it just had little Timmy Lee on the back of the Polaroid. And I'm not sure, but I really think my grandfather took the picture. Um, He was a kind of an amateur photographer back in the day. And that's kind of his thing is to be weirdly um, obsessed by something to the point of like him going to a photograph and have his own um, direct, you know, uh, uh, storytelling about it because he was there. And so when I learned more about Timothy, I realized that um, there was probably some kind of family connection. I'm not 100% sure because my grandfather was 94 when he died. So most of the people that would know have passed. But what I have found out is that Timmy basically lived on the same in the same neighborhood in Berkeley as my uncle on Acton Street is where my uncle lived. And I just realized that whole neighborhood is like where we kind of spend all the weekends. And so I'm just kind of like guessing right now that there's probably a deeper connection, which is why my grandfather was so intense on on telling me. And I think there's also this like other piece of it that I very much remember is like, we all never were told, we like, we never catched Bart after a certain time. I was like six when Timmy died and my family was very much on a, 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 not a fear factor, but there was a lot of fear around traveling outside of Berkeley, outside of Oakland. Like we could go San Francisco, Oakland, but anything out that we were driving and we were driving all together. And there was a constant kind of like, 
story in the background, a lot of these like shadow stories around um, fear. And I, it had a lot to do with Timmy. So when I asked like my parents' generation, they're like, oh, they remember it. And they remember all the kind of um, uh, parties that stopped that were in like Can uh, Concord and Antioch and Lafayette, anywhere in the like kind of outer um, Bay Area. But they don't remember so much about the Timmy story other than, yeah, they remember it happened. My mom totally was like, yeah, it happened. I'm like, and <laughs> more. And I think there's this kind of a sense of like them blocking out the the thing that triggered them from, from actually having this mobility in um, the Bay Area. And so since then, I've been just trying to like dig up more and more this story because, you know, I, I was six. Earlier when we did talk, we talked about burying history and things that happen when you do that and also about healing and what happens when you have like some sort of reconciliation, some sort of awareness and acknowledgement. Yes, this is a terrible history. It happened here in Concord. You know, what can we learn from it? How can we grow out of it? You know, so burying history and and healing because I felt a little frustrated because I attended the two council meetings in Concord leading up to my cousin's memorial walk. And I was on Zoom, of course, but I did speak. And I personally invited the city council and the mayor to come out. And none of them showed up. And I felt it was a missed opportunity for healing and taking account for what happened in your city long ago, which has been buried and forgotten, or at least, you know, tried to be buried and forgotten. So tell us about what this tells you. One, that none of the sitting board at the time showed up. Also, what happens when we do embrace our history or bury our histories and sometimes if we could have some sort of healing what it could mean well i will just say that um since i've been working on this film i definitely feel the spirit of timmy giving me momentum and giving me these little pebbles even bringing me to you and i think that's an important thing about laying him to rest and and bringing the truth this this collective truth that us on on this side of the tracks, us that are on the south side, us that are marginalized um, and and fight for our truth to be recognized. Like, I think it's I'm here even speaking to you because he's really pushing me to keep the story alive and figure out how best to get it to a center space and recognize so he can rest. I think it's a huge part of the Bay Area right now of this healing process that's very necessary. Like you go to these spaces and you can feel the energy that's stagnant. You can feel these um, lost souls that are asking us all to uh, recognize and to be careful and to give us warnings around how to navigate spaces. Healing is not easy. I don't necessarily think politicians are very, very good at it and ready for it. But if we're talking about progress, if we're talking about forward movement, we have to move through the pain. And it's not just about reliving and conjuring the pain every five seconds. It is about actually feeling like you are saying a piece of your heart and a piece of your grief so that you can then have generations move through that and understand how we move past the history. And history is very possible to move past if we really want to, right? And we all need to work together. I mean, like, there's so much in the healing process, even with my own work, that I, I feel it's necessary for me to stay in the Bay Area and to collectively make a future for everyone to live in. 
tell us briefly because we're running out of time where people can follow your work and you know what they will find there what is some of your other work yeah really quickly i just want to say that timothy inspired a feature film right now called elephant and obviously the elephant in the room is that we have a, a lynching that has happened in 1985 in california and there is not a collective memory of that that is recognized in the center space and that film right now is in festival. I think you can catch it probably at the Gullah Geechee Festival online, um, or you can just go to elephantfilm.com and learn more about the film. Most of my work is online. Again, you can go to my website, mariaaj.com, and see more of my work. I'm always in San Francisco, kind of just doing public art and you know, trying to find stories to, to bring to light. So I'm around, you can always like talk to me. <laughs> All right, Maria. And you were also inspired to write a poem about Timmy and you've agreed to read the poem. Tell us briefly about the poem and then go ahead and bust it out. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to do my best to read this poem. I just want to say I'm not a poet. <laughs> I was just really inspired. This is a part of a larger project. So Elephant is a multidisciplinary project. Part of it is the feature film and then the documentary that would be about Timmy. And I also wrote maybe three or f actually probably like 10 or 12 um, poems and a couple short stories that are attached to it. So I'm hoping this will be all a book to, to just find ways that people can engage with something. I'm always looking at ways to not trigger people around past traumas, but to allow people to approach those histories in ways that feel comfortable um, without harming, re-harming them again. Um, so this is the poem. Uh, it's called For Timothy Charles Lee. He who thought he had options chose to rest deeply into underwater dreams of a 19-year-old boy confidently moving through grounded and still, riding high above all the suckas Passing his Berkeley, south of midnight, he slept, that good sleep, neck crooked, rapid eye movement, oscillations of stardust permutations, of the day before today and so tomorrow, he reclined in fairy tale dreams that Jimmy would have been proud of. Lost one dollar on ten cent phone calls, he knew not to stop, dream, be still, lean back on an old fig tree with only branches and no leaves, hissing ignorant epitaphs and whispering secrets of phony palm trees. What of deferred people, strangers to naps, forced to be woke, awake, always awake, tortured, roaming, night, terror, eyes wide open from birth, he blinked for a second and forgot the ravening white gaze of burdened elephants devoured by the hive no fighting a swarm. He remembered his lucky day, now yesterday, a new day, a new beginning, yet in this life he dangled on backpack straps, a spiritual death for the crowd of, Limmy, of little Timmy Lees. Waking nightmares are curated here, one man said. Circling back to 1985, another man said, I told that boy to keep one eye open, said Big Daddy, archiving, and that he had a good American car for me. Rest in power, Timothy Lee.
All right. Well, thank you for that beautiful poem. Again, that's uh, Maria Judice. I got it right this time. Yes, you did. And you could find her work at Maria AJ dot. Help me out. Dot com. Dot com. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maria AJ dot com. Thanks for being here tonight on Full Circle. Thank you so much for having me. All right, you're listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and online worldwide at kpfa.org. We are part of the Pacifica Radio Network. You just heard my special guest, Maria Judice. Again, you can find more about Maria's work at mariaaj.com. Also, be sure to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show for a link to the entire interview. We only heard about 13 minutes of a 20-minute interview. Before we run out of time tonight, I want to bring you this short commentary by First Voice Apprentice Shiloh B. The residents of Concord claimed that when Timothy Lee was lynched in 1985, a racial attack would be out of character for the area. How this myth of California as a melting pot masks the racial violence deeply ingrained within California. Also in this commentary, we learn how the L.A.-based artist Ken Gonzalez Day uses photography and impeccable research to confront and uncover California's white supremacy crimes. This is a trigger warning. The following piece discusses the history of lynching in California. What you hear is not the sinister screeching of the sideshows in Great America's parking lot from Saturday night. It is not the squealing of the BART train on the tunnel tracks. And that horrifying hollering you hear is not the wind wrestling the burdened branches of an old California oak tree. That is the sickening sound of silence. What does it mean to witness absence? This is what Ken Gonzalez Day, an LA-based artist, has been asking, especially when we have been indoctrinated in a whitewashed version of US history in California more specifically. Because as Gonzalez Day knows, California has a long history of racial and sexual violence. As an artist, he has been confronting and documenting this with his two bodies of work called Erased Lynching and California Hang Trees. And in 2006, he published the first comprehensive study of the lynching of Latinos, Chinese, and Native Americans in California in his book called Lynching in the West, 1850 to 1935 on Duke Press. Sourcing archival images from postcards, newspapers, lynching souvenir cards, sketches, illustrations, and scrapbooks, he removed the bodies of the brutally murdered so as not to re-traumatize and instead to depict the monstrous murderers. Our eyes take in everything while our minds create facts through selection and conditioning and both bodies of work undress the vicious spectacle of lynching to lay bare the historical record that like the lynchings of African Americans, Native Americans, Chinese and Latinos of Mexican and Latin American descent were lynched here in California. Gonzalez Day's research, photographs, and book combat the near erasure of this history from California's consciousness to testify to the truth of this place. 
We know history continues to repeat itself when it's buried, erased, or denied. The residents of Concord claimed that a racial attack would be out of character for the area when Timothy Lee was lynched. This myth of California's melting pot masks the racial violence deeply ingrained within California. And as Michael German explains, white supremacy was central to the founding of the United States. Sanctified in law and practice, it was the driving ideology behind the European colonization of North America. German wrote in Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy, and Far-Right Militancy of Law Enforcement. Revealing and reclaiming these atrocious acts is only the first step in repairing the record. Without first admitting the terrorism of white supremacy embedded not just within historical acts, but most importantly within current laws, policies, and practices, its enactment will not actually end. Californian reparations to people of Latinas, Asian, Black, and Indigenous descent must materialize in order to right the wrongs of this racial terror, deeply implanted in the imagination, formation, and action of this golden state. However, it's impossible without first even acknowledging and admitting what has already happened. I hope you will join me in educating yourself and those around you. Please do your part. Thank you for that amazing commentary, Shiloh B., and for bringing us up on the L.A.-based artist Ken Gonzalez Day. We will post links to his work and all the information related to Shiloh's piece on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. And in our last few minutes, I'm going to send it back to the introduction circle at the first annual Memorial Walk for Timothy Charles Lee, who this show is dedicated to tonight. This is why we are here. I'm here because I remember when this event happened, there's a resurgence of racism. And this happened a long time ago, and it's still unsolved. And this is happening a lot. We find out what really happened years later. So I'm here to support I'm Sarah. I used to work just down the street and I would think about this terrible lynching and would sit there at work and think about that neighborhood back there and think about how someone must know something. And then when I found out that it was Frank's cousin, just left me speechless and frozen. And I believe that someone knows something. I believe that there are people, um, you know, civilians, police, officials shaking in their boots right now as as they should be. Hello, I'm Ray. My name is they, them. Uh, my, my pronouns are they, them, she, her, but you can also call me they, them if you want. And I'm a clinician at Rainbow Community Center and I'm here. I just thank you so much, Frank, for bringing us here together to honor this um, Timothy Charles Lee's life. And also I'm excited to work with you and to collaborate on seeking justice for this person. Hi everyone, my name is Parisa and I use they them pronouns. I'm our youth program manager at Rainbow. I'm also one of our clinicians. I'm here in solidarity for Timothy Lee and trying to seek justice for him because solidarity with black and brown folks and queer folks is something that is really important to me and I'm so appreciative of all the folks that have shown up today um, in the Bay Area, in Concord. Um, this is a really important issue and I really appreciate you organizing this. Hi, my name is Erin. I go by she, they pronouns. I am the training coordinator at Rainbow Community Center, and I'm here in solidarity for Timothy and 
the fact that so many cases like this continue to go overlooked in America and that justice needs to be served no matter how long ago it was. My name is Anaí Nava, Nava Flores. I go by they, them pronouns. And I am here to honor Timothy Lee's life, but also stand with the activism and the social justice aspect in remembrance and in stands. We will not be silenced. Our stories will not be silenced. And we are here to honor his life and those who have also suffered similar things. Hi, my name is Laura Cartwright. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the director of education at Rainbow. I'm here to promote visibility and justice and also to stand in solidarity with our youth and create a more equitable world for them and for all of us. And that does bring us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, as I mentioned, kpfaapprentice.org for more pictures, archive shows, and all the important links and information related to tonight's show, including the links to all the music used in tonight's show. The Full Circle crew is executive producer Miss M and me, Freewill and Franklin. I am the host and technical director for this show tonight, Full Circle. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you are interested in the case of Timothy Charles Lee and want to stay updated on our actions to bring justice, please go to the Facebook page, Reopen the Case of Timothy Charles Lee. Follow or like that page for the updates. Thank you very much. And remember, as always, while you're out there, to please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA right now. Up next is Loanda Bajita. Good night, everyone.